I think if my parents had supported me and encouraged me to do stand-up, I'd probably be a doctor now. I'd go, no, 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 I think I'll, I'll do medicine, yeah. <laughs> it gets better because it has to get better. We're all made of human. Hello, my name is Sophie Hagen. I am a stand-up comedian, and you're listening to the Made of Human podcast, in short, Mopod. It's a podcast in which I speak to people about life, I guess, but like proper talk. You know, I, I try to stay away from small talk and deflection and stuff like that. And I try to just talk. Yeah. <laughs> this week I'm speaking to Shasia Mirza and I'll let you listen to her chat in just a bit. I'm so happy that Shasia did the podcast. She was so poignant and funny and, and incredible and honest and I... I just, I mean, we've gigged together a few times, but I've never really probably talked to her. And it, on like a very personal note, it, she just meant, it was, it meant the world to me because Mark Watson is one of my closest friends, one of my best friends. And he went to this island thing, this, uh, whatever, Bear Grylls celebrity island bullshit where he had to be without, you know, anything to survive on an island for a month. Meaning that I had to be very, very alone and he wasn't here to talk to me. And I think that's the true sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I and Just if I had to be really selfish, and I don't, but if I did, um, it was so hard. It was I, I cried in public when he told me. I don't cry and I don't cry in public, but I was just weeping on a train when he told me. Uh, like, <laughs> for no, I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't know why, but I just gotten used to to him being there and I don't know maybe I was just emotional about other stuff doesn't matter but um anyways I was very sad when he left and I had to be alone without him for a month and uh it sucked it very much sucked and then when he came back I think I just felt weird about the whole thing I don't know I don't know why but we never we haven't really spoken about the island since he came back but when Shasia because she was on the island too that's why I mentioned it Shasia was on the island with him and I got to ask her questions about it I got to I don't know. It was like a month where he wasn't in my life in any kind of way. And I got to, I don't know, kind of cover the the holes in my memory of where he was that month. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense. But Shasia was just amazing. She sat down before we even started recording and just went, yeah, you know, I've heard about you from Mark. And he said this and this on the island. And he was like this. Because Mark's, like, <laughs> Mark's so humble and so... You know, if he ever talked about the island, he would talk about how great everyone was and he didn't mention himself. So it was really great hearing someone say, you know, he was the best to have on the island. And uh, Anyway, doesn't matter. This is not about him. This is about Shasia Mirza. And she ended up being just an amazing podcast guest. So you uh, look forward to that. <laughs> look very much forward to that. But first, uh, I'm just going to share with you, I'm going on tour with my brand new show, Dead Baby Frog. It's a stand-up comedy show about emotional abuse. Yay. Um, I just finished a run at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is why I might sound tired and unable to speak. But uh, once I'm away from my... I'm currently on holiday. And once I'm away from that, I will start touring. And that'll happen in October. I will be in... Peterborough, Winchester, which is sold out, Liverpool, Ferrum, Coventry, Swindon, Leeds, which is sold out, Nottingham, Whitehaven, Glasgow, which is sold out, Aberdeen, Norwich, Kendall, Milson, Keynes, which is sold out, Bath, Aldershot, Maidenhead, Newcastle, Newport, Leicester, which is sold out, Aberystwyth, Bristol, which is sold out, Manchester, which is sold out, Oxford, Bromsgrove, Stockton, Cambridge, Colchester, New Milton, Reading, Hull, Northampton, and Canterbury. Good. And then I'm going to go to Denmark, where I will be touring in Copenhagen, Aarhus, Olbo, Espia, and Odense. Uh, and in Denmark, the shows will all be in English. And my entire tour is anxiety safe. It has gender neutral toilets and disabled access all around. Go to sophiehagen.com for more information about this and to get tickets. And uh, whilst you're there, sign up for my newsletter. Pretty please. Pretty, pretty please. Uh, through my newsletter, I'll also announce when I do London dates. It will happen, we just haven't. Just haven't scheduled it yet. So, on my website, you can also buy my show, my last show from last year called Shimmer Shatter. And you can get that on sophiehagen.com forward slash shop. And it's just five pounds, or you can give more if you want. Um, 
I'm really proud of the show. It's about being an introvert and being a bit of a weirdo. And it's filmed at the Phoenix Artists Club in front of an audience made entirely out of Mopudlessness. So that was a very emotional and great experience. So before I let you listen to the episode, we shall do this week's Act of Disobedience. This week's listener is called Gemma, and this is what she wrote. This is a while ago, but it still sticks with me. I was on a night out with a big group of people, and this drunk guy walks through the middle of us on purpose, making us part. He walks between me and a friend and put his hand up the front of both our skirts and grabbed us by the vagina. I was so cross and shocked and drunk that I threw my bag on the floor and shoved him over, shouting, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Dude didn't have a clue what was going on, and I left him on the floor, curled into the fetal position. Fuck yes, Gemma! That's, oh my god. These are, some, these are my favorite ones. This is, I mean, yes. Fucking yes, Gemma. Well fucking done. Sorry for all this. Nah, I'm not sorry for the swearing. I love that. Yes. Fair enough. Any story that ends with a guy in a fetal position. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you can submit your own act of disobedience on madeofhumanpodcast.com or mopod.com, where you can also buy a t-shirt. Just saying. Uh, and I, when I when I pluck the t-shirts, by the way, I don't make like almost anything on the t-shirts. I made them as cheap as I possibly could. I think I make like a pound per t-shirt or something. So it's just because I love seeing my face on people's stomachs. That's the only reason. Um, it's not some big capitalist ploy. It, I mean, it should be. To be fair, I should get a lot more. Anyways, now it's time for you to listen to this episode with the incredible Shasia Mirza. My name is Shazia Mirza and I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I do. And you said you've, you rarely do podcasts. Yeah, I'm, I've never done a podcast ever. And I only agreed to do your podcast because people told me that you were nice and that you, uh, you weren't patronizing, which was really important to me that, uh, well, I've never done a podcast before, so it's not that it was important, but just that I thought, oh, great. You're not going to ask me like, typical questions and be patronizing towards me which is yeah. normally what yeah. you know people do uh they ask me stuff you know like oh what do your parents think about you doing comedy I mean didn't they just want you to get married I mean oh what do they think about you not married I mean oh god I mean as an Asian woman I mean this is really brave <laughs> brave of you standing on stage and talking in public I mean oh what does the community think so I just when people said to me, oh, Sophie is not patronising, I thought, great. She's not going to ask me those typical questions that people normally ask me. Now, there's a lot of pressure now. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, uh, I really hope none of my questions are patronising. Um, if I do, by like, tell me, tell me that to, to fuck off. Okay, <laughs> okay thanks. Uh, but one of the, because I, well, I've, of course, always known who you were, mm. uh, and then recently, and only say as much as you're allowed to say, but I've, you went to this island for the Bear Grylls, uh, what's this called, the island? It's called um, Celebrity the Island with Bear Grylls. And it starts when we're recording this on Tuesday. It starts Tuesday the 29th of August on Channel 4. What are you allowed to say about well, it? Well, um, Bear Grylls, basically he dropped 10 of us off, uh, so-called celebrities, I mean, <laughs> um, on off an island off Panama with no clothes apart from the clothes we were wearing, no shoes, no socks, no mobile phone, no computer, no pen, no paper, nothing. And he said, I'll pick you up in a month. Mm. Go and survive. Oh. And obviously, you know, I spent the next 30 days lying face down in a ditch covered in crabs, you know, not the crabs you might want. Mm -hmm. um, and just trying to survive and it was like the most it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life and I only knew one other person on the island and that was Mark Watson the other people I had heard of but I'd never met so we are then lying sleeping in ditches every night next to people we've never met we don't know trying to survive spending every waking hour of the day with these people 24 hours a day trying to survive and um it really makes you kind of look at your life. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I mean, I did it because Bear Grylls said that if you can do this, you can do anything in your life. And, you know, I have phobias. I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of cats. You're scared, scared of cats? I'm scared of cats, particularly black cats with green eyes. Oh, why? Where did that come from? I don't know. I just, ever since I was a child, I've been scared of this. I cross over the road if I see one. Um, I've slept in my car at night because I've been so scared to get out of the car because I've seen a black cat with green eyes oh, really? going up the street. I have a phobia of sleeping outside, spiders, crabs. Oh, my God. And I thought, I've got so many fears. If I do this, I can overcome my fears. Or if I can do this, I can do anything. I'll never be scared to go on stage again. And if someone heckles me, I won't be scared. You know, I've lied. I've been face down in a ditch for a month. I can take a heckle. You know, I thought I, it was about facing fears for me. And so what, did, did it work? Did you end up not being scared of spiders and sleeping outside? And In the beginning, it was very scary to sleep, to sleep outside because you could always feel things crawling up your leg. You could always feel being bitten by things. You could feel things in your hair. Oh, God. I mean, it... And But by the end, by day 28, 29, I could just sleep there still. Wow. Knowing there was things crawling up my leg. Oh, God. But in order to, to overcome your fa fears, you have to face your fears. And I've never been in a situation where I have been forced to face my fears. And so... I may not have overcome my fears, but I've certainly got better. Wow. So was there any point, because the flight was, what, 13-something hours? Because yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm friends with Mark, so I was, like, tracking him the whole way. <laughs> like, turn on your phone again. Um, so I know, <laughs> almost know where you landed at what time. Uh, so was there a time during that, did you just want to turn around, or were you really set on this is going to be well in the beginning you don't know what you're letting yourself in for because you've watched the programs like I've watched the jungle I watched Bear Grylls on on YouTube so I I'd seen clips mm. but they are clips that have been edited to provide a kind of TV show mm. it's it is no reflection on what actually happens when you're in there mm. because that is an experience only you can live so I didn't know what I was letting myself in for I, none of us knew But, you know, when you're forced to be in a situation, you're forced to get on with each other. And we all got on with each other. Oh, that's we lucky. all liked each other. And the way to survive was by getting on with each other. And actually, the metaphor is, an, is the island is a metaphor for life. What happens on the island happens in life. The dynamics between men and women, the men that are the alpha males that just wanted to go out hunting and killing animals every day. The women who kind of took a back seat and didn't voice their opinions. The men that put themselves forward to be leaders. The women stood in the background. Um, and it's a metaphor for life. It's just in, in a condensed situation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So did you see that happening on the island? And did you, like, did you say, hey, yeah. guys, we're... This is happening. It, it, it was so obvious. Like in the beginning, there was a few guys who were really alpha male. Mark's not one of them, obviously. <laughs> um, they were really alpha male. And they just wanted to hunt and kill. Oh, let's go hunting. Let's go and get a crocodile. Let's go and get a caiman. Um, and it was very obvious. And then the women were like, okay, I'll, I'll stay at the camp and I'll cook the food when you bring it back. I'll clean up the camp. And, and we kind of just got into these roles that when you when I stood back and looked at it one day I thought they are in very dominant male roles we're in very female roles like the men would put themselves forward as leaders and say you know I'll take charge here the woman women took a back seat and I never spoke up ever I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite a strong woman but I never spoke up and said hang on I want to be a leader never said that I never kind of took charge in the beginning and I It was kind of what happens in life. Yeah. Men have no hesitation about putting themselves forward for things, nominating themselves as leader. Whether they're good at that job or not is irrelevant. They just want to put themselves forward as leader. Hey, I, I can do this. And because they kind of dominate that, that conversation, women kind of take a back seat. And that's, that's exactly what happened. Wow. 
So did it change towards the end? Did you? I mean, towards the end, it changed because we kind of forced ourselves, the women forced us. Well, in the end, it changed because like all things in life, the women turned out to be better than the men. Um, you know, the men <laughs> yeah. love to put themselves forward and go, hey, I'll do that. And then they fuck up and you think, yeah, well, I saw that coming, you know. <laughs> Um, but the women, they don't kind of put themselves forward, but they do a job and they do it really well. And before we went on the island, Bear Grylls said to us that the women are always better at surviving than the men. Women are adaptable. Women know how to survive. Women just get on with things. They don't talk about it. They just do it. That's what Bear Grylls said to us before we went on the island. <laughs> but as it happens, what he said played itself out. And the women were grafters. The women worked really hard. All of us, whatever job we took on upon ourselves, we did it really well. And it was a metaphor for life because men cannot survive without women. That's what it showed to me. Men need women for support mentally and physically. They need women to encourage them. They need women to support them. They don't feel adequate without women supporting and encouraging them. And that is what I saw on the island with my own eyes for the first time in my life. I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is how it is in life. Wow. So it did end up being life-changing. Yeah, because you realize things about yourself. You realize your own strength. Because mm -hmm. you never know your own strength till you're pushed to the limit. When you're pushed to the limit, you realize your tenacity and how far you can go. And when you've got to survive, you will survive. And generally, women are survivors. You know, we give birth, we survive that. Mm. We survive it two, three, four, five times in a lifetime. You know, women can bring up children by themselves and, you know, do a great job and think, you know, there are women that choose to be mothers by themselves and do this and do everything by themselves. And, and I really saw it on the island. Wow. How women are survivors. I saw that really firsthand so did you feel stronger or did you just feel like you um discovered your strength i i you don't know your own strength you don't know because none of us had been in that situation none of us have been starving on a desert island stranded for a month with nine people we don't know i've never been in that situation but what i learned is that If I put my mind to it, because it is mind over matter. If you believe that you can do something, you can probably do it. Um, if you can visualize finishing this, you can do it. You know, I think if you can go there in the mind, you can go there in the body. And I think I gave myself no option to quit. I thought, I've got to stay in this. I've got to stay in this to the end so that I can prove to myself, you know, if I can do this, I can do anything. You know, me and Mark are comedians, and then we had two Olympic athletes, Ewan Thomas and Sharon Davis. And I remember speaking to Ewan one night, because it was really difficult. And he's like, oh, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. This is so difficult. And I said to him, well, you've won so many gold medals for Britain in the Olympics. You, you know, when you were 21, you won a silver medal for Britain in the Atlanta Olympic Games. You were 21. I said, why did you win that race? Can you remember that race? And he said, yeah, I remember that race. He said, in the, it was the final. And everybody in that race was of the same ability. That's why we got to the final. That's why we were in that race. We knew we could do the 400 meters in a certain amount of time. Um, he said, but when it came down to it, it was mind over matter. He said, I, I saw myself in my mind finishing across the line and winning that race before I even ran it. And he said to me, just imagine you are, this was right at the beginning of the island, he said, just imagine you are on that boat, Bear Grylls has come to pick you up and you've done it, you've done it after a month. He said, just, put, just go there in your mind. And he was absolutely right. I kept, I gave myself no option to leave. And I thought, you know what, I can see myself finishing this. And I think um, that is a, a lesson for life. Imagine yourself that you can you can be that person that you want to be. You can believe that you've achieved. You can achieve what you want to achieve. 
Um, and I, it taught me how to look at myself in comedy as well. Mm-hmm. How? Because when, well, when I first started comedy, I, I was the only Asian woman doing stand-up comedy in this, con- in this country. And in the beginning, I, I, used to think, I used to say to myself, you know what, this is, this is no job for an Asian woman. I mean, my parents don't know about it. They didn't know if I did comedy in the beginning. They didn't approve of it when they did find out. And I just thought, you know, this is all the women doing comedy are white. And there's a couple of black women, but most of them are white. Um, Most of the audiences are white. Who's going to understand me, what I have to say? Who's going to understand my life, you know? Um, And I, so many times I thought, oh, you know, this is not a job for me. You know, I'll do it for a bit. I'll give it up. Um, But I think you have to visualize yourself that there is a place for you and that there are people that want to listen to you and they may not understand everything that you say but they could there's no reason why they can't get into your world and try and understand and you know still find you funny that's still if you think it's not possible it won't be possible but i think if you believe that it it can be possible I mean, Richard Pryor must have felt like that at one point. Chris Rock must have felt like that at one point. Wanda Sykes must have felt like that at one point. Um, so I think it taught me that I mustn't block myself. And then after the island, mm. you just had that. Yeah. So you said you didn't... You said that you thought before you went there that you were never going to be scared of going on stage again. Has that been true? Yeah, when when I was on the island, I remember it, there was a terrible thunderstorm one night and it was raining and all our... The shelter that we'd built had got blown away and we were lying in a ditch. It was like soaking. We were just lying in this ditch. All our waterproofs were not waterproof anymore. And um, I remember Mark turning to me and went, and he went, you know what? Any gig you do after this is just going to be a walk in the park. I mean, nothing is going to be this bad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, actually gigs uh, seem irrelevant now. Anything in life is irrelevant now. We hardly talked about comedy when we were on the island. And I and it was about like two and a half weeks in and I said to Mark, we haven't talked about comedy at all. And he said, that's because it's just irrelevant compared to trying to survive because you just think about survival you just think I want to get to I hope I see tomorrow I hope I wake up in the morning that's what you think and when you're in a survival situation it's weird I never thought about my parents never thought about my brothers and sisters never thought about my friends I just thought about how am I going to make it to the morning that's really interesting I think that kind of, so that's a question I always ask in this podcast. I think that kind of possibly leads to that quite perfectly. So so it's kind of like an imaginary situation, right? So, and then again, it's not really. But if we were in a situation where there's like an evil dictator who's taken over the country and obviously like a right-wing guy and he's killing a lot of people and it's, we're talking kind of, you know, center of Berlin, World War Two situation... You can kind of choose between being in three different situations. You can either be, you know, join the bad side, become one of the <laughs> one of the baddies, or you can try and be more neutral, you know, just kind of stay stay in the background, try and not make any fuss. Or you can join the resistance. And there are of course similarities to today because to some extent that is happening, but if we're talking the resistance as being like an actual physical like the way they did in the in the, the olden days with, you know, people placing bombs in the parliament and stuff which of those roles do you think you would take um that i would definitely have to get up and do something i would definitely have to fight back i I could never just stand there and do nothing but in my life i've done that so many times just stood there and said nothing and done nothing when I should have said something and I should have done something. But I think 
it takes courage to stand up, A, and tell the truth, or B, to say what you really think, knowing there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with you or might not like what you say. So therefore making yourself very unpopular. And as a comedian, we don't like to be unpopular, do we? <laughs> we desperately want to be liked. Um, and, you know, you you don't know people in your show, but, you know, I always leave my show and I think, God, I hope they liked it. I hope they liked it. I don't even know these people. I don't know who they are. I, can't, I didn't even see half their faces. And I think to myself, I hope they liked it. I hope they liked it. But I think, you know, if you're in this situation, which we are in this situation now because of Trump and everything, um, you do have to stand up and you do have to say something. But if you don't have the courage to do that, you have to find the courage to do that. Well, I think what you said about the survival thing and how, because if you imagine that, when I imagine that situation, I want to, you know, you really want to be one of the people who are on the front line fighting. And then you go, oh, but would I be scared of... You know, what about my parents and what about my friends and what about, you know, you suddenly get all this attachment. But as you say, if you're in a survival situation, maybe if that gets cut out because now it's all about this one cause or this yeah. one goal, that's yeah. almost good news. Yeah. I never thought it would be like that. I thought that I would really miss my parents and my family and my friends. But when you're in a survival situation, you've got no food, no water, no shelter, nowhere to sleep your clothes have been bitten through and all you think about is how am I going to survive this moment and get to the next moment the last thing you think about is your family and your friends it's so strange and I think about all the people that go to war mm. um, and all the people involved in war like the women and the kids and you just think about yourself in that moment and how you're going to survive you don't think about your past You don't think about your mum and dad or your family or anything. I didn't think about them once. You said that you that there were so many times where you haven't spoken up. Mm. I think a lot of people would find that surprising because you seem quite outspoken, and you know, there's been a lot of uh, you know like media attention on your. I was about to say controversial views, but it's not really. Is it saying that ISIS is bad? That's not really a controversial view, is it? But you seem outspoken. You seem like you're you know saying your mind. I think any female that stands on stage and does comedy is outspoken. <laughs> Go. Well, so brave. We should so pat brave. ourselves on the back, really, for standing up and speaking. <laughs> How brave of us. <laughs> any woman that stands on stage in any platform, stand-up comedy, politics, law, whatever, and says an opinion is a brave and outspoken woman. <laughs> <laughs> and too loud and too oh Way god too, too much, much too much, much too much too loud <laughs> difficult yeah. oh difficult woman i don't With know if you've had that one yeah. <laughs> she's a difficult woman yeah she speaks up way too much it's it's these labels and they are derogatory labels put on women you know it's never an, a, a sexy thing to say oh she's outspoken oh yes i'll jump into bed with her she won't shut the fuck up while we're in there <laughs> that never happens it's never it's never a, a sexy thing for a woman to be uh, as outspoken but every woman should be outspoken i mean otherwise we're always going to be on the back foot we're always going to be second place we're always going to be struggling for equal rights and struggling for our place in society if we all just shut up and we didn't say the truth and we didn't speak our mind and that's I think that is what the struggle is I think it's hard I mean as a as a, as a female stand-up I mean I came to your show I love your show and you yeah. talk about things that I've never heard before mm. I, I've never heard a lot of the things that you talk about on stage before And there are people that sit in the audience and think, I'm n nobody's ever said that, yet I felt it, or I thought it, but nobody said it. And you're kind of, there's a sense of relief that, oh God, thank God, I'm not the only one that thinks this, or thank God she's saying what I feel, and there's somebody speaking up, not on my behalf, but that that is a voice that is being heard. Um, because so many of women's voices are not heard and different types of women's voices, you know, mm. you know, like 
I talk in my show now about how I don't really understand feminism mm. because I was brought up in a very patriarchal culture mm. uh, where my dad um, made all the decisions. Um, I have three brothers and they were sent to private school because their education was valued more than mine. So I went to the local comprehensive, but my brothers, that my parents paid for them to go to private school because they were going to be doctors and lawyers and I was just going to get married and have kids. So... I was that is the kind of household that I was brought up in and I fought against that to because I to me growing up I just, just didn't seem right how can you spend thousands on my brothers but not on me I mean are we not all equal so that was a big thing always in the back of my mind um, and then I was brought up in this culture where you know my dad made the decisions and I've read so many books about feminism and I've I know the history of it. I've watched documentaries about it, but I don't really... I know it intellectually, but in, in life and in practice, I I don't really understand it because I feel that it doesn't include me or women like me. Mm-hmm. I feel, um, you know, that it just doesn't include people like me because when I go on these marches, like I when Trump said he grabbed pussy and there was all this worldwide march against against him and about what he did and what he said. And a friend of mine said to me, you know, do you want to go on this march? And I said, yeah, okay. And then my mum rings me up and says, what the hell is going on? Why are you not married? All the men are turning gay. You know, there will be no men left. And then I just thought, oh my God, I can't go on this march because there's other things I, I should be getting on with. Like, I'm not valued as a woman because I'm not married in my culture. Mm. And every time I go on these marches, there's never any women that look like me on these marches. Mm. All my friends are white, middle-class, guardian-reading women, and I share their views. We believe in the same things. But I I went on these marches. I've been on, like, three marches this year, and I never saw one woman that looked like me. Mm. And I just think to myself why aren't there women like me on these marches and I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who she wears the niqab and the hijab she's covered from head to toe in black you can just see her eyes and I remember going to visit her before International Women's Day and uh, she said to me oh you know what are you doing on Thursday I said I'm doing this gig for International Women's Day and her mum came in and she said oh what's that and she turned to her mother and she said, oh, it's this thing that white women do. It's a white women's day that women, white women celebrate. And I, that was the first, and she just said it casually, you know, like, oh, it's a white women's thing that white women do. I was like, oh my God, is, is this, this must be what a lot of these Asian women, Muslim women think. It's just that I've heard it now. I did, I knew it, I kind of knew it before. But I never heard it being said like that. And I just thought, oh, is this... Because I always do gigs on International Women's Day. And I, and I just saw it from a different point of view. And I think that's why I don't t- totally understand. I, I thought, you know, there was a worldwide march for a man who said he grabbed pussy. Yet, you know, there's Muslim women, the most oppressed minority in the world, are sitting at home probably wondering what's pussy, you know. <laughs> you know, there's no worldwide march for our pussy, you know, what's happening um, to us? And I think, you know, that that's how a lot of women must feel. And I do feel like that sometimes. like Because the measure of something, the effectiveness of something is about what it does for you. And everybody wants to know whether something is working for them. Brexit happened. White working class men voted out because what's this country doing for them? Um, There's worldwide marches for feminism and there's there's groups of women thinking, well, what's it doing for me? And I think the effectiveness of something is whether it affects you and what it's doing for you. And to me, feminism is not just what you do for yourself, it's what you do for all women. And I am well aware that there are groups of women that feel excluded and feel this is not working for them. Who's marching for us? Who's speaking for us? 
Why are we still the most oppressed minority in the world? Who's helping us? And I haven't ever, ever said this in my stand-up before. And now I'm saying it because I've kind of been forced into it because I've been thinking about it so much over the past few years. And, um, but I think every, even if you don't feel included, even if you think your, your view is going to be on the outside, people are going to oppose this, people are not going to like it, I still think it's still important for you to, for you to air that view. Because if you don't air it, it will never be heard. So whether you think it's right or you think it's wrong, you should still say it. It's the it's that irony of feminism being about men having to acknowledge their privilege. It's like you say on the island where men will automatically censor themselves. And the same thing happens when it's white or a person of color. Like whiteness makes people censor themselves and be used to being in the center of everything. So when feminism becomes a thing, white people are like, yeah, it's a thing where we should actually do what we would kind of want men to do, which is take a step back, realize that we're not automatically the best at everything. <laughs> it's exactly the same. But then we have this white feminism, which is just, uh, like I have, there's so many issues with it because it's the same with trans issues and LGBTQIA plus issues and, you know, I'll have people who come to my shows with the pussy hats that they wore at, at the march. Oh, yeah, yeah, Do you yeah. see them? Yeah, Which yeah, is yeah. that whole of equating uh, vaginas with femalehood, which is transphobic because there's a lot of yeah. women who don't have vaginas. And then, okay. and also the pussy hats were all pink. Mm. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which is not even true for a lot of white women, can I just say? <laughs> uh, well, sorry. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a weird thing of I think it's just that's why it's so important that you say that and incredibly important that you say it on stage. But it's as you will know, standing on stage and giving a particular view and looking at the faces in that audience, knowing that some of them do not agree with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Although, are they mainly white people? Um, yes. But, and also, I don't like to be horrible to women because I love women. Mm. I like women. They're my friends, they're my supporters, they're my helpers. You know, I like them, you know. Not that much, obviously. I don't lick them. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I like them. I love women. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're saying that, you are talking ag against a group of white women. You're saying, you know, hang on a minute. I don't feel included by you. I don't feel like I'm in your group. And it, it, sometimes it can feel like a bit of an attack. Because, but I like, but I feel that if I don't say it to them, they will never know. Mm. Or they may have read about it in The Guardian, but they've never actually heard anyone say it. Mm. And I think it's, especially in comedy, it's really important to hear different points of view, mm. whether you agree with them or not, or understand them or not. You have to hear them. Because if you don't hear them, you, don't, you won't know. And if you don't know, you can't change anything. Mm. And you're, that's another thing, the whole female comedian, you will always be the one representing Whatever you are. And you must know that more than anyone. Because you, you used to wear a scarf on stage, yeah. didn't you? Oh, is it called, it's called hijab. Something hijab. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so niqab is that with, you can only see the eyes. Yeah. Hijab is the scarf. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so that must have been. Has anyone yeah. else, did anyone else do that around that time? Or no. even now? No. But, and you know, when I started comedy, I was, the, I was the only Asian woman in comedy. And now there's maybe two or three of us. So in like 12 years, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. But I never felt that I was representing anybody apart from myself. Mm. I mean, when you stand yeah, on it's stage... it's never a choice, is it? It's just put upon you. Yeah. As, oh, so that's what you women think. No, 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 oh. no. Oh, God, no, it's just me. <laughs> don't, don't blame them. <laughs> do, you, do you feel, though, that you need to speak for other women? Uh, no, but I feel like people sometimes expect me to. You know, mm. like you, in interviews and stuff, you'll have people say, you know, so... Being a female, you're like, I don't know. Like, I just know me, you know. Mm. I, can, I can't speak as a woman. I can speak as I can, literally just me. But you will get that 
you know, you'll say one thing on stage and all of a sudden there's an article called, ah, I guess the, the topic for women comics this year is this. And then they'll like quote three female comics talking about the same thing. So in that way, you'll just get this, like, because I'd never, I never thought of, it's going to sound weird, I never thought of myself as a woman. I knew I was, but my mom never called me girl or woman. She always just said person. There was never any focus on it at all at home. It wasn't until I was 21 and I started doing comedy. Suddenly it was like my prefix, woman, female. I'd never had to think about it before that. I never felt like I was part of any kind of group. But now all of a sudden it was just... You're the woman. Sophie Hagen, you are the woman. The woman. Representing all women. <laughs> all the women. All the women. <laughs> I, it's, for me, it's the opposite. I was made very aware that I was a girl growing up. My, my, my dad would always say to me, you can't do that, you're a girl. You can't wear sh- skirts, we can see your legs. You can't do that, you're a girl. You, you can't play football, you're a girl. You can't go on school trips, you're a girl. You can't go to private school, you know, you don't need education, you're a girl. So I was always made aware of my gender, but I was never made aware of my race or religion. That Mm. is something that was put on to me when I first started comedy. Mm. I used to have labels like Asian female Muslim stand-up comedian from Birmingham. I was like, (laughs) how the fuck can you get any more labels in there? Don't you think five is quite enough? I mean, do you think people are going to just come and watch me because I'm Asian female Muslim from Birmingham? No, they just want me to be fucking funny. Just shut up with the labels. And that is all. I used to be labelled everything. I've I've been labelled everything. Yeah. And that race and religion thing was put on me because I've never seen myself as like brown or mm. I think I'm white, I think. I think I never saw myself as as a as a as Asian or Muslim. I never saw that. That was kind of put on me and made me feel like you should be talking about this, mm. explaining, you know, mm. why your people keep blowing things up and do you know who did it and do you know are you related to them and do you know him and and I it I got all of that in the beginning and I never understood it because like you say I was just a a girl from Birmingham that's it yeah it's funny you say that oh I think I'm I'm white because that what what that sounds like is, oh, I thought I was neutral, you know, or like the status quo. Like, I didn't think I was different. I thought I was like, like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they make you very aware. That you're not. Yeah, definitely not. But I never realised that before. Ever, I never, ever realised that before. And I never, ever thought there's nothing I can't do because I'm a woman or because I'm brown or because I'm Muslim or anything. I never thought I can't do something because of those things. But... That was kind of put upon me and made me made me feel like I couldn't do things because of those three things. So why didn't it? So if your if your parents taught you you can't do certain things because mm. you're what there must have been another influence that made you think that you could because otherwise you wouldn't have done the things you did. Or where did that strength or defiance come from? I used to look at the things that they said and did, and I, it just didn't fit right to me. I used to think, why can't women do play cricket or play football? And why can't I do what my brothers do? I, it never made any sense to me. What, just because I'm a girl, I can't do those things. It, it didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel right with me. And I thought there was an injustice about this. Mm. That was just not right with me. And I, I challenged it all my life from a very young age. Um, much to my parents' um, disapproval. Mm. But, I mean, even now they don't... I mean, they've never watched me perform. And they don't come. And they wouldn't... To be honest, sometimes I think I'm glad they're not here. (laughs) (laughs) All those anal sex jokes, I mean, really. (laughs) I wouldn't want my parents to be sitting through them. Um, But also, um, I just... They never talk about what I do. So, like, we'll go home and we'll sit around the dinner table and they'll talk about Kim Kardashian, they'll talk about Donald Trump, they'll talk about what's in the news. They will never, ever talk about what I do. Mm. And it's never discussed and it's never talked about. And there's a bit of a... I think there's a bit of a shame surrounding it because I'm not a doctor mm. or, a, or something respectable that they don't, they don't bring it up and they don't encourage it. It's it's very strange. It's very strange. But obviously I use them as material. 
Um, and they, I think they know that. But the, even then, they don't want to come along. And like if I was a parent and I knew my kid was making jokes about me, I'd want to pop my head around the curtain and think, what the hell is she saying, you know? <laughs> but they don't even do that. And it's really weird. It's really weird because I've said some really dark stuff about them. <laughs> Do you, would you, if they suddenly turned around and started being incredibly engaged and supportive, would you want that? No, it's too late now. You know, I've been doing this for about 12 years and they've never been in, they've never supported, they've never been supportive. And I've, I'm all, I'm all right with that. I'm, I'm okay with that now. And I think if they turn around now and said, we're going to start coming and we're going to be on the front row of every one of your gigs and support. I'd be like, no, please, please don't come. It'd be really weird. I feel quite free and uncensored. I can say what I want. And I think if they were there, then I'd be worrying about. I, I always find it really interesting when I hear comedians say, oh, my mum and dad come and watch me. I, I find, I just think, I can't imagine that because it's never, it's never happened. Yeah, yeah, I, it, Does your mom come? She's seen it uh, twice or three times or something. And she's like the very first time <laughs> after the show, it was like a big deal. It was the first time ever doing the Danish comedy club. And I had to do like a middle five and it was like a huge deal. And she came and saw it. And afterwards she said, that was um, a really, uh, it's a really beautiful wall. I was like, what? She's like, look, it's like they painted the, the bricks black. Like, you did, did you know you could paint bricks black? Like, it looks just really pretty. And I was like, okay, gotcha. This <laughs> sounds enough. so funny. Really? Yeah. So funny. And then she has like a few. So I, because the, the show I'm doing now is about my family and about her dad and about my grandfather. And it's very personal. So I have told her, you know, I say this about you and this about you. Is that okay? And she always goes, well, it's correct. It happened. <laughs> So, of course, you can say that. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you feel? And she's like, well, you can say any truth if it's something that happened to you. And I was like, okay, fair enough. That's, that's good. Yeah, well, I think if she, if, you, if she was the other way around and was, like, super supportive, I probably wouldn't have become a comedian. Yeah, I think so, too. I think if my parents had supported me and encouraged me to do stand-up, I'd probably be a doctor now. I'd go, no, 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 I think I'll, I'll do medicine. Yeah. <laughs> Because you always do what you always do the opposite of what your parents tell you to do. You always want to piss yeah. them off, basically. So I've oh yeah. yeah. Well, my mom when I was growing up, she always said to me like, "Oh, you can, you can do drugs. You can go drinking." <laughs> no, Did I don't. Want, I'm not going to give you a curfew. You, you know, you. I trust you as a person. You can just come home whenever you want. So I'd be home at 10, like drinking coke, just being like, "Well, I'm not going to go drinking. But that that's not. I'm just allowed to do it." While well, my friends would sneak vodka into bushes and stuff and drink it. I'd be like, nah. Yeah, that was like me. That was like me. You're not allowed out. You can't wear trousers. You can't look at boys. So what happened? Yeah, I just started taking ecstasy every night, wearing mini skirts and trying to shag everything I could get my hands on. Because <laughs> you do the opposite. You thought you were gonna, if you were going to bring me up in, you know, in Alcatraz, I'm going to just try and go. I'm just, you just do the opposite. You just go mental. It's a rebellion. Yeah, of course. So I, that's, I, that's what I'm doing. I think I'm still rebelling. Still rebelling. I think so. I think I'm rebelling. Well, I'm, it's not the norm, what I, what I do. I, I don't think it's normal anyway for anyone. I don't know, to stand in a room full of strangers and tell them your deep, dark secrets and yeah. try and make them laugh. Yeah, it's a very bad idea. <laughs> so, and then expect to get money for it. I mean, it's like really a really weird thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, so and weird. then be a bit mad if they don't laugh at you. Yeah, <laughs> and then hate enough. them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people send me hate mail. I'm thinking of sending my audience hate mail because some of them are awful. <laughs> you bastards. Why didn't you laugh <laughs> today? I always But, have. So I always end up having one joke in my set where I, that I think is funny and they never laugh. But then I get to say to them, That was, that was. I heard you do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I like it. I'm keeping yeah, it. I, this is just, this is just. I really like this one. It's always jokes about my dad. They never find funny. You have to enjoy yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I need something out of this one hour of attention as well. Uh, the the so the Islam bit. You said that wasn't something you were made aware of until no. you like people's and that must. I often think about how. Well, isn't, I don't know if it's still that aggressive, but there was certainly a time where atheism in comedy was so aggressive, almost violently aggressive. It was such a, almost like a gross display of entitlement, the way that everyone suddenly had these 
kind of just two easy jokes about you know religion being a bad thing. Did have you, has that affected the way you you've kind of t- not talked about it or talked about it or identified um, maybe or I mean I I think any kind of fanaticism is dangerous. If you are extreme right, you are as bad as the extreme left. If you are a fundamentalist Muslim, you are as bad as the fundamentalist atheist. Any kind of fanaticism, extremities and unable to see other people's point of view or meet in the middle, I think can be dangerous. And I mean, I know a lot of fanatical, devout atheists who are devout about their atheism and actually preach and go on about it far more than the devout Muslims I know. Mm. And I find it, okay, you don't believe there's a God. Okay, end of. And like, (laughs) what more is there to say? You don't believe that he's not there. Okay, it's the end. So why do we? Why are we going on about this for five, six, seven years every night of the week? Oh, there's no God. And okay, I I have very good friends that are devout atheists. I have very good friends that are devout Muslims, and they're all my friends. And people can believe what they want. Freedom to believe and freedom to speak. You know, it's great, and it's great to have dialogue between the two. I listen to my atheist friends all the time about why they believe there's no God. I mean, Richard Dawkins is, uh, oh, protests too much. I mean, this is very worrying, the amount that... I know atheists that have disowned Richard Dawkins because they feel that he is just too much of an atheist. I mean, to have... Okay, you don't believe there's a God, I can understand that. But then to just keep talking about the fact that there's no God and Mm. you need to have a bus that there's no God, no God on the bus. And then, I mean... Wait, no God on the... On there, was the a, there was a bus, uh, which was called the Atheist Bus. Um, and on the slogan on the side was, there is no God. And this was driven around London everywhere. Um, and it was Jesus run by Christ. it was run by atheists. What? And, um, How many... I mean, did that work? <laughs> well... Did any religious people look at that and go, oh, yeah... I'll change my mind. Yeah, what a good point. Yeah. <laughs> bu- well, these slogans on the side of buses never work. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you should have learned that by now. But you that know. is the weirdest thing. Uh, but I suppose uh, I, I agree. You know, they should be able to talk about their atheism as much as people should be out- allowed to talk about their Christianity or Islam or whatever. Um, but I. For me, religion and faith is a very personal thing between me and God, if he does exist. I mean, it's a personal thing. I don't, I never try and convert people. I never try and, you know, push my beliefs onto people. And in Islam, actually, it tells you not to do that. It tells you not to push your faith onto other people. Um, And so I don't believe in doing that. I have friends from very many different backgrounds and... um, I think it's really important to have friends from different backgrounds so that you... Because anything can change your perspective. Mm. You know, me sitting here talking to you can change my perspective on something. Me having an atheist friend could change my perspective on something. And if you never have things to change your perspective, that's how bigotry and racism happens and hatred happens when you don't have anything to change your mind. And that's why it's important to have lots of different experiences that you might or might not like. Go and see lots of different comedians who you may or may not agree with. But it's important for you to hear those views, meet those people and have those experiences. Because otherwise your perspective is very one-dimensional. And that's very dangerous when people just believe one thing. That's how we get dictators. You know, that's why there was the situation in South Africa where people just believed that black people should live together and white people should be separate and why we have Trump now, why we have Brexit. Because people have a single, definite reason and way of thinking and they're not open to anything else. And it's very dangerous. I want to ask you something because everything you just said is so true and but also very diplomatic and no, but I'm, I'm wondering that 
when someone like like me right now brings up the topic of Islam, for example, does it do you feel like you need to be um, diplomatic or defensive, or is, will is there at all a part of you that just wants to say, yeah, God's real and I love Him? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because because I because there are the, people that would say that. Yeah, yeah, there would be people. There would be people that would say, oh. Islam is the only true religion. It's the only true religion. It's, uh, you know, we have to believe in this. Um, otherwise, we're going to go to hell. I mean, we're right. You're all wrong. There are people that, that, that say that and believe in that and are that devout that they, they would say that to you. But I'm a stand-up comedian <laughs> and I meet a lot of different people. I know a lot of different people. I'm You know, I'm educated and I read a lot. And I read a lot about different things. So I have I haven't had a lot of experiences. You know, I saw a comedy show on a bus last week. I mean, that <laughs> if you have not experienced that, you would think, oh, this is crazy. But it's a different perspective. It's a different way of seeing comedy. Like I saw comedy on the top deck of a bus. That is different to sitting in the theatre and watching comedy there. It's a different perspective. But if I hadn't have done that, I would never have known that. And I've had a lot of experiences and a lot of different, um, you know, experiences in my life that have changed the way I thought. There are some people that are so devout, they don't want those experiences. They don't want other perspectives because they believe so devoutly in what they believe. They don't want anything to change their perspective. And that's dangerous because then that's how you get ISIS. That's how you get white supremacy. That's how you want to get Donald Trump. They don't want things to change their perspective. And in order to change your perspective, you have to be open to that. So you are just diplomatic. Yeah, but not everybody is, as you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, ne and neither do they want to be. And that's dangerous when people don't want to be educated and they don't want people to change their mind and there are a lot of people like that so I think this kind of leads perfectly into the last question which is so you're in the delivery room and you've just been born and so you I mean it's very much a fictional situation so you're holding yourself as a baby Right now you're holding little tiny Shashimisa and it's a teeny tiny baby and, and she's crying and screaming because the sounds and light everywhere and it's very terrifying because she just got out of the womb and it's all very horrendous and you know that the next, uh, like up until now in your life, you know that there's going to be a lot of light and sound because it's life and things will be scary. It won't be light and sound, it'll be other things like lying face down in a ditch on an island and stuff like that. And you can say something to little baby you. You can't change the future at all, but you can maybe say something about the life that this baby's going to lead to maybe calm it down or whatever you really want to, whatever you want to say. What would you say to little baby you? Um, um, I would say be courageous and be kind. And uh, always do what you believe you think is right. Is that something you still need to hear? Yeah, it's difficult to be courageous and take risks and be brave. It's it's difficult to do that. You know, it's scary to do that. It's so easy to stay in the same place, saying the same things doing the same show, telling the same jokes. Safety, you know it works. You, you've got to be courageous and do difficult things that may push you and others forward. And always be kind to people because, you know, you see people walking along the street and you don't know what's going through their mind or how they're feeling or, um, you know, how they are inside And, you know, one nice, uh, one kind thing that you might say or do might help them change their day. Or one awful thing you might say might break their day. 
So I'd say just to be kind to people. Really, you may you don't know you're helping them, but you might be helping them. And to always believe it, and to always say the, do the things that you believe to be right. You know, we we all do things that we think are right or we think are wrong, but um, we don't. Um, we don't really always put all our effort into that. It's hard to stand up for things that you think are right. You might be the only one, and everybody might be opposed to what you're saying and doing. People may not agree with you. You will be disliked. You may feel uncomfortable. But um, if you don't do that, then um, nobody else might do that. And you don't know how many people that you could help along the way. But that also ties into having the courage to do that. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. No, no, thank you for having me. My first podcast. I'm very proud. <laughs> is there any, I mean, this might come out in about a month or so. Is mm. there anything you, people can, where people can find you? Or? Well, the island will be, still be going on then because it's mm-hmm. six episodes. And then I will be on tour. Uh, with my new show, which I'm doing in Edinburgh at the moment, um, with Love from Saint Tropez, I'll be going on tour with that, um, and uh, I will be doing that abroad as well. Cool. Whereabouts? I'm going to Ankara in Turkey. Nice. I'm going to Pakistan in October. I'm doing Lund September, um, and I'm doing Switzerland. I'm doing Zurich in Switzerland in October as well. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, so people should come and check you out. And you're on Twitter and Facebook and all of that as well? Twitter, yeah. Shazzy on Versa 1. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so, so much for doing this. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I love doing this podcast, and I know you know that, and I know I keep saying it, but I do mean it. And, you know... This is all the usual stuff, you know, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It does mean the entire world. And uh, I don't know why, but there's some algorithms and stuff. And anyways, that matters. Share the Mopod, tweet about the Mopod, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. Um, Also, a thing that you do, which I didn't know how much I'd appreciate, but it's so important. You tend to tweet at the people who've been guests and you let them know that they've meant something to you. And I love that. If you can only do one tweet, please let please let that be it. You know, tweet at the guests and tell them that they're great because that that's more important than any other thing. But so once you've done that and you're just sitting there and you're wondering, oh, how can I possibly help Sophie out? I mean, I can't even begin to describe how much this helps, but you <sighs> what I like about this is that there's no middleman, okay? I, I'm not I'm not being paid to do this by an organization. I'm not being paid by um, companies. I don't have to sell you coffee or mattresses or anything. I can just do whatever I want to do and get the guests that I and we all want. But it does take up a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of all of that, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, you donating financially means the fucking most. It is so important and I'm so, so grateful that you do. I I can't even begin to... Uh, I'm so lucky. So thank you. Thank you for donating. If you're not donating, do consider it. You can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D, and you can decide whatever you want to donate per episode. You can give a dollar if that, that's what you want. You can give two, three, four, I mean, up to, I guess, a thousand dollars per episode. I mean, consider it. And... um. And then it just deducts it from your account every month. It's very simple, very safe, despite the whole dollars thing. And um, it really helps a lot. And if you give more than $5 per episode, you become a friend of the podcast, meaning that you will get a shout out at the end of the episode. It sounds nice. It's not. It's me butchering your name. But um, that's exactly what's going to happen now. So I would like to thank with all of my heart, people whose names I will never forget. Uh, I've met quite a few of you during the Edinburgh Fringe. Sometimes people will say, my name is this, and I'll go, oh, I know you, you're from the list. And I'll always remember the name. So uh, on the date uh, that this is recorded, uh, these are the friends of the podcast. A big, big thank you to... 
Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Wingrith, Victoria Greer, Marnie Biles, Phil Vabulas, Olivia Hove, Rachel Furley, Zoe Cumberland, Maria Mrs. Linsko, Josie, Elizabeth Stapplemore, Vivian Riddick, Kirsten Davidson, Purdy Patterson, Steph Ream, Mari Fraser, Ruth Harvey, Jane Young, Dan Smith, Gillian Brady, Bethany Dahlstrom, Darshan Bangle, Katie Hatfield, Robin Kappa, James Frew, Karen Thrathaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Sugo Larsen, Lucy Inger, Ellingson, Maddie Searle, Caleb Melkua, Dr. Motorcycle Returns. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Dr. Okay, you can choose your own names here. That's what's happened. Dr. Boda Cycle Returns, <laughs> Jessica Stuhlfire, Meg, Emma Chan, Sylvia Nova, Kathy Beveridge, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Geraldo Nascimento, Claire, Dan, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, Grace Suter, Kat Pillar, Harold Van Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira, Igerseth, Cherie Dunphy, and Daniel Reifersheet. <sighs> oh, God. You're, you're, you're funny and you're tough and you're the coolest people. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I will speak to you next Wednesday. Thank you to Sarah Garvey for producing this episode, Bailey Leonard for writing and recording the jingle, to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo and Phoenix Artist Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. Thank you so, so much. I'll speak to you next Wednesday. Bye.